0: Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return.
1: The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Here's where I want to start, just a very quick little recap of, um, from last week. Who was, anybody not here last week? Okay, a few of us. Okay, so a little recap from last week. So last week we were laying the foundation for viewing reality catholically. Viewing reality as a Catholic. Viewing reality as Jesus wants us to view reality, which is to say he wants us to see and understand that all of creation is the visible revelation of the invisible creator. That God the artist, his greatest masterpiece, is all of creation. Just like Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel speaks of him as an artistic genius in every part of the, the frescoes, all of creation is revelatory, right? And I use that distinction from C.S. Lewis, the difference between looking at the beam versus looking along the beam, right? The whole meditation in a tool shed, that we are meant to look along creation as iconic, as there's a depth behind it. It's not just merely stuff, matter in you know fields of force for us to manipulate, but it is It's all like signs. God speaks in sign language, right? So the greatest sign that God has communicated himself through is Jesus himself. Jesus is the great sign. He is himself the great sacrament, we might say, the great making visible the invisible father, right? So we talked last week about how the invisible, this is pop quiz, the invisible is made visible through the physical. physical. Very good. Very good. The invisible is made visible through the physical. Jesus Christ is himself the great sacrament of the Father. He makes the Father visible, tangible, touchable. Right. Think about John in his letter. He says, we do not proclaim to you something like mysterious beyond the clouds. He says, we proclaim to you something that we have touched, we have seen and heard. We have looked upon with our own eyes. Jesus, the word made flesh. He is the icon of the Father. I didn't have any icons in the slideshow last, year, last week. I almost said last year. Last week. This is, a, this is an icon of Christ, the teacher. It's in, I think this is in the Hagia Sophia. In, um, is it Istanbul? Yeah, okay. No, actually it's in Constantinople. I was just going to say, is it Constantinople or Istanbul? I thought, what was the modern name? Istanbul slash Constantinople, right? So this was a Christian church, and now it's, uh, it's a mosque now, right? Well, it's, a museum. it's a museum now. Cool. That's awesome. <sighs> I'm going to the Holy Land with Deacon Rich. There's a bunch of us going in, uh, in February here, in just in a few days. Anyway, one of the cool things, well, not a cool thing. I take that back. A very frustrating thing about the Holy Land is you go to these places, spoiler alert, Deacon, you go to these places and they're like so this like the, the upper room for example this was the upper room what is it now oh this is a mosque now why is this a mosque now and they're like oh because there was muslims and blah, blah, blah. They're like oh my gosh i hate history this is very frustrating anyway istanbul constantinople all right so Jesus, the one great sacrament making visible the invisible Father, the icon of the Father, in his earthly life, in and through his apostles, in and through his ministry, he established seven sacraments, seven ways, we can say, seven ways for his grace to mysteriously continue to flow to us, right? So this is what we're unfolding over these next three weeks. Remember the image of uh, Pink Floyd, right? Okay, Jesus, (laughs) Jesus breaking the wall. Okay, Pink Floyd here. The one great light refracted through the, the Paschal mystery breaks into the seven colors, the seven sacraments. It's a powerful image, very powerful image. You've got baptism, you've got confirmation, these two we're talking about tonight. You've got Eucharist, you've got confession, you've got anointing of the sick, matrimony and holy orders. We're going to be diving into all of these through these next couple weeks. Again, why? Because as fleshy embodied creatures... We experience reality first and foremost through our bodies. We experience reality through our bodies. Every experience you have is first and foremost a bodily experience. The world is mediated to us through our bodies. And so too grace. To be a human is to be bodily. To experience love, to experience grace is is a bodily experience. We give and receive love through our bodies, which is why when you bury a loved one in the presence of their body in that casket, there's great grief because this body isn't just anybody. This is somebody who loved me through this body. It was her arms, his hands, her face, those lips that used to kiss this face are now gone. So. Christ gives us his grace through the body. So he took on flesh in order to communicate God's love to us. Remember that scene that I, I drew our attention to last week where Jesus comes to heal Simon's, Simon's mother-in-law. I always get tripped up on those words. Simon's mother-in-law who has a fever. I'm sure Simon was like, no, Jesus, please heal her. No, It's my mother-in-law. <laughs> I'm sure she'll be fine. Say, I will cure her. No, don't do it. (laughs) But it says he approaches, it's a good mother-in-law joke. He approaches, grasps her by the hand, and raises her up. This is what he does in the sacraments. We have to remember that it's not as though those those, those Jews of the first century who got to see Jesus and touch Jesus and sit with Jesus and listen to the Sermon on the Mount. It's not as though... They had something extra that we don't have access to. Because if that was true, if that were true, like, God, it would just be unfair. It would be, I mean, just think about it from that perspective. You can get your, like, five year old self on. It's not fair, right? But it's not true. It's not true that the same Jesus who reached out, who touches humanity in the Gospels, That that Jesus is accessible to us in the church, in and through the sacraments. In and through the sacraments. Remember Pope St. Leo the Great who said, what was visible in Christ's life in his ministry has passed over into his mysteries. The same mystery there is the word sacrament in Greek. What was visible in his life, reaching out, touching Simon's mother-in-law, has passed over, has become translated into... The seven sacraments. So today, like I said, we're going to be introducing you to the two two of the uh, three sacraments of initiation, which are baptism and Eucharist. So we're talking first about baptism, (laughs) which is a terrifying sacrament when you're an infant. (laughs) I just love this picture so much. (laughs) So there is so much that we could talk about tonight with this and cover with all of these sacraments. And uh, we just there's just too, there's too much. There's just too much. Do, do all of our people have catechisms? Is that a thing we gave them, catechisms? Okay. Um, after tonight, Chris is going to email everybody with the appropriate catechism paragraphs for the sacraments that we're covering. I'm not, it's, not, it's not like homework. You're not like being graded on this. But if you want to take a really good deep dive into the, like, rich Ghirardelli brownie of the, you know, church's teaching on this, check out those uh, sections from the Catechism. But, what we're going to try and do tonight especially, and uh, next week, in the next few weeks, is, the image I have is uh, like a beautiful diamond, with all of these different facets, this beautiful gem. We're just going to rotate it, to keep looking at it from these different facets, keep looking at it, gazing into the mystery and the beauty, and the meaning of these sacraments. It's just inexhaustible. So, um, We're just going to be scratching the surface. So here's where I want to start with this picture, these two pictures. Anybody know who this is, the little baby and this guy in the white suit? That is Pope St. John Paul II before he was John Paul II. That's little Carol Wojtyla as a child. And little Carol Wojtyla, when he's making his... uh, for, uh, his uh, first communion it's kind of cool to see a saint as a baby huh right there's him as a young man late teens I'm always so impressed with this like just strong Polish jaw the chin right there it's just awesome he was a brilliant actor brilliant poet he had a brilliant mind for philosophy this is him as a newly ordained priest When he was first ordained, he was assigned to the University of Lublin, where he worked a lot with college students. This is him just kind of chilling on the grass with these college students that he would take up into the mountains on these hikes and they would do long camping trips. He would talk to them about philosophy and theology and life and marriage and sexuality and all these things. And uh, they would call him wujek, which is Polish for uncle, because they wanted to kind of conceal his identity so that he wouldn't get arrested and, uh, you know, sent to Siberia. Um, but this is him as a young man, shaven in the wilderness, reading on a kayak. This man lived an incredible life. Look how cool that guy is. Come on. Uh, he's wearing a hoodie sweatshirt. That's so cool. Look at him skiing. This is the Pope on the slopes. <laughs> looks like, hang on, I never noticed this. It looks like the guys in the background are praying before the Pope goes down. <laughs> That's what they're doing. Oh, I hope the Holy Father doesn't die. Oh, gosh, we'll be in so much trouble. Okay. <laughs> Look at him holding a koala. So he was, he was elected to the papacy in 1978. He lived a larger-than-life life. Larger-than-life. This is a guy who traveled more than... I mean, if you take all of his miles that he traveled and add them up, it's like going to the moon and back eight times. They say he was the most visibly seen human being in history. More people saw him with their own two eyes. He established World Youth Days. He canonized more saints than all previous popes combined. He wrote 30-something, I think, encyclicals. Uh, He had, I think, the second or third longest papacy in history. He was instrumental in the fall of communism, suffered assassination attempts, was the fulfillment of one of the secrets of Fatima. Pretty cool. Um, He articulated the church's vision on marriage and family and sexuality for a modern audience in a way that nobody else had. Um, In other words, providing the antidote to the culture of death that was just unleashed on the world in the 20th century. And he was dying in the year 2005. Everyone was watching his his slow demise. But his Cardinal secretary, Cardinal Jivish, asks him before he dies, Holy Father, of all the things that you've done in your life, of all the things you've experienced, what has been the most significant day? This is him and his death. What was the most significant day? He said, the day of my baptism. That was well-timed. <laughs> the day of my baptism. It wasn't when he got to consecrate the world to the Blessed Mother. It wasn't when he brought the church into the third millennium. It wasn't when he got to canonize St. Faustine, the first saint of the new millennium, establishing the feast days of divine mercy. None of those things. It was when he was baptized. So what the heck was he seeing about baptism that most of us don't see? Baptism, the church fathers called it the porta fidei, which means the door of faith. It's the way we get into the life of grace. That whatever it is that Jesus did on the cross when he said it is finished, whatever was accomplished, whatever suddenly became accessible, whatever deed was done on that Friday that we call good, the way we get access to it, the Church Fathers say, John Paul II says, is through this thing called baptism. You get into it, or it gets into you, we might say, through baptism. The image I had in my mind, I was praying about this earlier this week, was... um, Who's read the the Narnia books, the Narnia Chronicles? Lucy opening the wardrobe. That through this wardrobe, you open it, and it goes into Narnia. That through this door opens up a whole new world where unbelievable things are possible. That baptism is an invitation into Narnia. It's an invitation into a whole new world, a whole new way of being, a whole new way of seeing. It's the doorway in. It's regeneration. Something new happens to us. We become made new. Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who asks him um, what Jesus says, you must be born again, born anew of water and the Holy Spirit. And Nicodemus looks at him and says, do you mean I'm supposed to like, re-enter my mother? Notice Jesus doesn't say no. <laughs> just trying to expand his categories. Surely you cannot mean this. Baptism is regeneration. We are remade. St. Paul calls it new creation. We are birthed in the waters of baptism. We are birthed into nature through the union of our mother and father, and we are birthed into the life of grace through the union of Christ, the new Adam and Mary, the new Eve in the font, in the waters of baptism. I'm getting ahead of myself, but Grace, we say, in Catholic theology, grace builds on nature. So what God has established in the natural order, there's the parallel on the supernatural order. We enter this life, this natural life, through human generation. We enter spiritual life through the door of Narnia, if you will, through spiritual regeneration. We have to be reborn. 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 This is what it truly means to be born again. This is what a born again Christian is. Gotta get baptized, gotta get baptized. Grace builds on nature. What Jesus is by nature, namely the divine son of God, right? We say in the creed, consubstantial with the father. Blood was shed, martyrs were made fighting over that word. The word in Greek is homoousios, meaning Same substance, same nature, one in nature. He's this, whatever the Father is, Jesus the Son is. They're made of the same stuff. What Jesus is by nature, listen to this, and just try and take this in. You might fall out of your seat, but you'll be okay. What Jesus is by nature, we become by grace. Again, perfect timing with the (laughs) Who's watch, whose phone is that or who watches that? That's Whoever that is, you're good. Don't have to turn it off. God's got the timing on this one tonight. I guess if, if I make a point, then we'll just be waiting for the ping. See if God likes what I have to say. Okay. What Jesus is by nature, we become by grace. We become adopted sons and daughters of God the Father. As St. Paul says, we received a spirit of adoption We get drawn into the family and we become authentic sons and daughters of God the Father. That before baptism, we are merely creatures, beloved, no doubt, but not yet a son or daughter of the Father. That's right out of the catechism. Okay, so the catechism, it it enumerates the effects of baptism. let's Let's look at these. We are freed from original sin, both personal and original, made new creatures in Christ, this filial adoption piece that's what I was just saying incorporated into the body of Christ the church made shares in Christ's identity as priest prophet and king marked indelibly made citizens of the kingdom of heaven we're going to walk through some of these a little bit slower here remember at the beginning of the year i spoke about those the horrible consequences of sin we were unpacking the overarching story the created captured rescued response that as a result of sin we weren't just simply separated from god we were apprehended we were taken we use the image of the human trafficker, that that's who the enemy is, that we were taken, right? Through the envy of the devil, death entered the world. We were in the hands of another, in the hands of another, separated from God. Our race was in slavery to the powers of sin, written with a capital S, like this oppressive power, the power of death, and the power of Satan. We were helpless to these powers, right? That's how we, that's why it's the vision, theology of the church for, for the incarnation for Christmas, right? Oh, come, O oh, come Emmanuel and ransom captive Israel. We were captive, right? Captive. And I think I use this image, but uh, of those three Cleveland girls who were taken captive by Ariel Castro, right? Amanda Berry, Gina Jesus, Michelle Knight, they were taken, they were tortured, they were abused. I think it was Amanda Barry who conceived and was allowed to carry to term one of the children that she conceived. This is a little girl named Jocelyn. She gave birth to Jocelyn in Ariel Castro's basement. So this little girl, by no fault of her own, was born into a world of slavery, born into a world that was confined by a malevolent force that did not love her. That's the, that's the reality of this fallen world. That's what it means to be born with original sin, By no fault of her own. So Jesus enters into this fallen world. He binds the strong man who is Satan and plunders his goods, which is us, and takes us out. Takes us out. And the transferring is what happens at baptism. That's what happens at baptism. In baptism, God delivers us, right? God delivered us from the dominion of darkness, Ariel Castro's basement, this fallen world and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Let's look at this real quick. The kingdom of his beloved Son. It doesn't just mean like Jesus looks and says, this is my kingdom. (laughs) It's not what we simply mean, the kingdom of his beloved Son. What we mean is what marks this kingdom, what marks this new reign, this new way of being, is sonship. We might just put it this way, being a child of the king. That relationship of intense intimacy and love and trust and goodness, you're brought into this new way of being. What does Jesus say? Unless you turn and become like children, again, whose children? The children of the king. You cannot enter the kingdom So in baptism, God delivers us from the kingdom of darkness into this kingdom of sonship, of being a daughter of the king. God liked that one. (laughs) Being a son or daughter of the king. All right, let's go back to these effects of baptism. It says we're made new creatures in Christ. That's this idea that I was just saying, that we receive a new identity, just like when you when you finish when, when we finish baptisms, Deacon Rich and I, one of the things that the family receives, one of the things that the child receives is a baptismal certificate. It's like new identity papers. It's like a new passport. This is who you are now. You've received a new name. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's what you've been brought into. You've been baptized into the name of, in the power of, the authority of. You are in the family now. That's like—I mean, I, I sometimes when I can't sleep at night, I, you know, the rabbit holes of YouTube, the algorithms, all those things. We've talked about it. I've confessed it. Doesn't matter. So the um, some of the videos that I've I've like wandered into are the like like adoption like gotcha day videos. Oh my gosh! Have any of you seen these videos? Like. When you've got the the parents who've been, they've got the little kid, now they're finally in the courtroom, and the judge is making the final pronouncement, and like, this is the day, and they swing the gavel, boom, and you are officially this person's kid. Oh, it's, if you don't have, if you don't, if you're not crying, you don't have a heart, all right? That's all I'm saying. If you do have tears streaming down your cheeks, you don't have a heart. We receive this new identity. God the Father sees his beloved son when he sees his baptized sons and daughters. Like, we move the Father's heart just like Jesus did. It's just, this was a radical thought for me years ago when I finally let it sink into my mind that, I should say into my heart, that I, I guess I used to think, and I think a lot of us think, that God the Father looks at Jesus and he's like, oh, that's my boy. Then he looks at us and he's like, ah, eh, Chris. <laughs> you're, you're great. Jesus, Chris, (laughs) like, like we're like, we get like the diluted version of God, the father's love. It's not true. Try and process this, that the father's heart beats with the same excitement when you turn to him as much as when Jesus turned to him. pause on some of this right now real quick. There's a lot of what I've been saying and a lot of what I do say often as a priest like tonight where I don't really know what all of this means. Like I believe it. I can't fathom it. It's like saying, try and picture right now seven quadrillion dollars. I don't know what that means. That's mind blowing. It's mind-blowing to think that the God who hung the stars has affection for me, cares about me, likes me. He knows stupid things about you, like how many hairs you have on your head. What a stupid thing to know. It's so useless. I think that's the point of that image, that there's there's no practical utility in knowing that but I, I know everything about you. Robert, not me and you. We doesn't know how many hairs we have on our heads. <laughs> I said I have more than three. <laughs> Bing! <laughs> so this is the first, like, this is one of those things that like, we could just stay here in this thought for the rest of the year and just try and let this soak in. We can't do that, but this is your first and fundamental identity. That as someone who is going to be baptized and someone who is baptized, you are named. You are a beloved son. You're a beloved daughter. That the same, like what the father says to his son, like at Jesus' baptism, he said to you and he says to you continuously, you are my beloved son. In whom I'm well pleased, I delight in you. I want to show you a clip from a, a movie that is really powerful. It came out a number of years ago, uh, a DiCaprio movie, Blood Diamond. Um, what I want to show you has nothing to do with diamonds, but um, the, there's a character named Solomon Vandy, who um, his young boy named Dia had been taken. So again, this sort of image of captivity. Dia was taken by the awful... Congo rebel forces. And just like they, I mean, this is a reality. They get these kids addicted to drugs with psycho hallucinogenic, you know, they just mess with their brains and their minds. They get, to, they get them addicted. They get them doing all sorts of things. So they commit all these horrible atrocities. Child soldiers. So DiCaprio is with Solomon, Vandy, they're trying to find this massive diamond that Solomon found in the diamond mine, and he buried it into the, in, the, in the ground. He would come back to find it. And Dia comes across his dad and this other character. I want you to listen to what the father says to the son, and let your heart just like, really receive this. Let's just make sure this is up.
0: what are you doing? Dear Nyangbe, Nyangbe! What are you doing? Beladia of the proud Mende tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister. And you you, baby? The cows wait for you on Babu. dog who wants no one but you. Hmm? I know they made you do bad things but you're not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you and you will come home with me and be my son again.
1: can't watch that without crying every single time. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, Hollywood just does it better than we do. I know you did bad things, but you are not a bad boy. You will come home and be my son. Again, this is what baptism gives us access to that tenderness of the father's heart. That's, that's the truth. Oh, we get incorporated into the body of Christ through baptism, taken into the body of Christ, which is the church. You don't sign up to be a Christian. That's not how this works. Otherwise, this is a, Stupid process. <laughs> it was just a matter of paperwork. We could have gotten this done a lot faster. Like when I was a junior in high school, for photo day, there was uh, No, no, no. It was all of these like social clubs were set up in the cafeteria in the commons at the high school. And uh, me and my buddies, because we wanted to have in the yearbook... Like, all of these extracurriculars and activities listed under our names, we signed up for every single club. I was a member of Asian Awareness Club. I was a member of French Club. I was a member of, uh, like, Sign Language Club. I didn't didn't do any of those things. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) I was a member, a founding member of the Foursquare Club, though. I will tell you that. That's another story for another day. There was a racketeering scheme. Anyway, so um, that's not how this works. You don't get to sign up to be a Christian. You get grafted into the body of Christ. It's much more like an organ transplant that you are taken into and become assimilated into an already existing body, right? St. Paul uses the language of the body of Christ, the mystical body that we are individually cells and members in the body, doing different things in different functions. That's the image taken into the body of Christ. And if that's, excuse me, if that's true, like Jesus is the head. We are the body. And what the head experienced, the body experiences. Where the head went, the body will go. This is especially true for us right now as Christians in this modern world where like, it feels we're on the brink of, I mean, we're, we're experiencing soft persecution now, but if you're a student of history, you know that that always gives way to something more intense. What the head experienced in terms of the passion, death and resurrection, the body will experience the body will experience. Catechism also says with, with baptism that we are made sharers in Christ's identity as priest, prophet, and King. We participate in these ministerial, role, ministerial roles of Jesus. I'm just going to touch on that tonight and move on. We'll maybe talk about that later. Baptism also marks us indelibly that once you're baptized, you can't be unbaptized. And you only get baptized once. So is anyone here going to be baptized? or Who's our going to be baptized person? I think it's sage. Oh, right behind you. Yeah, right there. Okay. And okay. I have holy envy for you guys because I was baptized as, as an infant. Obviously, I don't have any memories of those days. But you will remember this indelible moment, this moment that's never going to be repeated in your life. You're going to remember it. I will make sure that you remember it with lots and lots of water. <laughs> It's going to be awesome. (laughs) Sometimes when I can't sleep at night, I think about how I want to do it this year. (laughs) Anyway, all right. Last point that the catechism makes with baptism is that we are made citizens of the kingdom of heaven. You ask the question, where do I truly belong? Where's my homeland? Heaven is what the catechism says, which means that we are simply pilgrims now passing through. We are, this is not our final homeland. We're making our way home. Okay, so now we have, we're going to talk about confirmation. The effects of confirmation, again from the, from the catechism, indelibly marked with this sacramental seal. Strengthening of baptismal graces, sevenfold gifts of the Holy Spirit, empowered to witness and set apart for service. Okay, so again, this is, you only get confirmed once. You get baptized once, you get confirmed once. It's like a brand on your forehead. Invisible, mystical. But think back to like, it, it's connected to, theologically, imagery wise, connected to the branding, the marking of Roman soldiers. Marked with the, um, Chris, what were they marked with? The SPQR. What does that stand for? Something Roman there you go. Marked with the, the sign of the emperor. That's right. <laughs> You want to fight me? All right, anyway. So you're marked, you're branded. It's a strengthening of baptismal graces. It's a completion of baptismal graces. So what God begins to give you in baptism, he completes or he fulfills through confirmation. These sevenfold gifts of the Holy Spirit, we're going to talk about these, but these gifts are given to you not f- simply for you. It's not like Christmas morning when you get confirmed. It's like, oh, thanks, I got gifts. No, these gifts, are their power is being given to you to enable you to give things away to other people, namely faith. So the sevenfold gifts are like a new way, a strengthening to empower you for witness, for evangelization. And the final part, the set apart for service. We're going to talk about that, but it's setting you aside. It's marking you, consecrating you for witness, for service, to be put into, to, be, to go to work. That's the way to put it. You're going to work. you got a job to do. Confirmation is not the Christian sacrament of graduation, You are now, like, at the starting gate. The gun has gone off. You've got work to do. You've got work to do. Okay. That's a good stopping point for a little break. I know that this is a little bit early for a break, but we're going to take a deep dive after the break. Sound good? All right, let's take a break. So that right there, what we just covered there, is a really good... uh, That's all true, that's correct, I haven't lied to you at all. (laughs) I've taught you real things. Um, But again, that's one facet of this diamond. I wanna, again, turn it, and I want us to, I'm mixing all my metaphors, I was just about to say, I wanna pull back the veil. Uh, I wanna take us another step down. Um, Surprise, surprise. Again, my classmate, James Colway, give us the gold. I want to give you the gold here. I want to just take us a little bit deeper um, into baptism and confirmation to reveal uh, the hidden mystical depths. Again, the church's theology, the scriptures, all of it, it's as uh, I think it was John Chrysostom who said it, it's, it's shallow enough for a mouse to walk through and deep enough for an elephant to swim in. So I want to do a little swimming tonight with us on this uh, topic of baptism and confirmation. What is really going on at the depths? The depths are where it's at. That's where it's at. Let's start with this. Uh, not this. This. Paragraph 16, 17 again from the Catechism. Actually, before we even get to that, this sculpture, we've, we've seen this image before this year, yes? I, I, I never know what I've shown. Yes, have we seen this? Who, who is seeing this for the first time? Okay, so this sculpture, it is, uh, it's called Teresa in Ecstasy. It was sculpted by Gian Lorenzo Bernini, um, an Italian Renaissance sculptor who I have just just unbelievable admiration uh, for. Like, how do you make marble do that? Like, what? Like, you didn't have a Dremel. <laughs> No sandblaster? I don't get it. So what this moment is depicting, what this sculpture is depicting, is a real moment from Teresa of Avila's life. So this is Teresa of Avila on the right, and she describes this in a diary entry, a journal entry. Not a diary entry. Dear diary, today in prayer, you're the only one who understands me. Okay, Uh, she had this experience in prayer where she said she was uh, an, an angel appeared to her, In fiery love, she says, holding in its hand a dart. And on the end of the dart was fire. And this angel began to pierce, she said, pierce my heart over and over again. And she said it felt like it was ripping out my entrails. But she strangely described the experience as being so wonderful that she wanted it to go on forever. And so painful, she wanted it to stop immediately. This one called the transverberation. So just ignore Teresa for a second. If you just look at the angel, what does that remind you of? What is it? Cupid. Cupid. Cupid, Cupid is the Roman god of? Love. What's the Greek counterpart of Cupid? Who said it? Someone said it. Eros. 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 That's where we get the word erotic. Now, let's not confuse eros and erotic with the other Greek word, porneia. That's where we get another English word, pornography, right? Eros is that passionate, burning, yearning love to give oneself to the beloved. It's a longing for the other, a longing for fulfillment, a longing for the other. This is God's arrows reaching into the bride, reaching into humanity, reaching into Teresa of Avila. What's wild about this, this wasn't just a spiritual experience, this wasn't just in her head. After she died, they removed her heart, and on her heart, there's a cauterized scar from the flaming arrow. What you see here is an image of God's desire to pour his love into your flesh and blood and soul and heart and mind, all the way into all of your humanity. Pope Benedict, again, he said, is what we see on the cross is the madness of God's eros, God's love for humanity the God who suffered his own, the consequences of our rebellion, who sought to unite himself to us. This is the like the preeminent doctor of the church on the mystical life in prayer. Teresa of Avila. Okay, so paragraph 16, 17. Baptism, the entry into the people of God, the Porto fidei the catechism teaches is a nuptial mystery. It is a bath of water in which the imperishable seed of the word of God produces its life-giving effect. Baptism is a nuptial mystery. We say nuptial mystery, we're talking about the whole earthly sign reality of human spousal love the beauty, the gift of husband and wife, everything we see in Genesis 1 and 2. They were naked. They felt no shame. The two become one. All of that nuptial mystery, the complementarity of giving and receiving, masculinity and femininity, that is what we mean by nuptial mystery. And the Catechism is saying is that baptism is a nuptial mystery. This is where we have to say, okay, maybe... There's more going on here than I realize. The entire Christian life, the entire Christian life, the catechism says in this paragraph, bears the mark of the spousal love of Christ and the church. Already baptism, the entry into the people of God, is a nuptial mystery. Listen to this. It is, so to speak, the nuptial bath which precedes the wedding feast, the Eucharist, Christian marriage in its turn becomes an efficacious sign, the sacrament of the covenant of Christ in the church. Since it signifies and communicates grace, marriage between baptized persons is a true sacrament of the new covenant. Okay. Let's look at this quote from Christopher West. The catechism states that baptism, that baptismal grace has begotten us in the womb of the church. I just want you to pay attention to the the very fleshy words that the catechism uses to describe this mystical reality. Baptism grace has begotten us in the womb of the church. We may be inclined to dismiss such language as a merely poetic way of describing some ethereal reality, but for Mother Church, this spiritual truth becomes quite concrete In the visualization of the liturgical rite inscribed in the baptistry of the Pope's Cathedral in Rome, we read, at this font, the church, our mother, gives birth from her virginal womb to the children she conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Begotten, womb, mother, birth, virginal, conceived. Like, these are the words, this is the language that the church uses to articulate and describe these realities. Like the church clearly envisions the baptismal font like a womb. It's not just a bath. It's like a womb where Christians are reborn. It's a womb. Let's go back to this image. I know that I didn't prepare you well for this. Okay. We contemplated this earlier when we were talking about Mary and the incarnation, right? So and so, that whole lineage from Matthew's gospel. So and so begot so and so, so and so begot so and so. This is the genealogy of Jesus. Da-da-da-da-da, all the way through, right? This person, father meets mother, father meets mother, father meets mother, father meets mother. And then Matthew says, Now this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. When his mother was betrothed to Joseph before they lived together, she was found with child through the Holy Spirit. So this, again, this natural reality, the seed giving itself into the bride to conceive new life, right? This natural vision, this natural reality is taken to a new level in the church's theology, in the church's liturgy. So at the Easter vigil, there will come a moment where we are blessing the baptismal waters. It'll look something like this where the priest will take... Can we see if we can do something about that? It's just so loud, Deacon. See what you can do for me. The... I just can't hear myself think. The Paschal candle is a symbol itself of Christ. It's a symbol itself of Christ, right? Christ the high priest, Christ the divine bridegroom the priest, or in this case the bishop, will take the candle itself and you are instructed to lower it into the font. This is a not-so-subtle symbol of what we're talking about. Christ himself fertilizing, fructifying the waters of baptism. In the old rite, in the old rite of the Easter vigil, the priest would say over the waters fructify these waters three times fructify these waters fructify these waters make these waters fertile may that divine seed right let's go back to this quote so around the this is the pope's cathedral in rome saint john lateran surrounding the baptistry where people are baptized for centuries at this font the church our mother gives birth from her virginal womb Who else had a virginal womb that gave birth? Anybody know? Mary. Mary. Okay, very good. Right? She gave birth to Christ. Church, the church, our virginal mother, gives birth from her virginal womb to the children she conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. What do we call those children that the virginal church gives birth from her virginal womb? Christians. Christians. The Virgin Mary gives birth to Christ. The Virgin Church church gives birth to Christians. That's how this works. The power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Gabriel says to Mary. The child to be born in you, called Holy, the Son of God. The power will come upon you, virginal church. The power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Sanctify these waters. (sighs) Fire, fire enters the font. I know, mystical, poetic, but stay with me. Sometimes when it comes to this, this, these realities, only, only these sorts of analogies that stretch and strain the imagination work. Right? Mary herself, Mary herself, in, think of the image of Our Lady Guadalupe. She's pregnant. She's clothed with the sun. Why? Because the fire of divine love has entered her womb. It's entered her body. This woman is on fire with divine love. She's the burning bush of the New Testament, on fire but not consumed. The virgin church, our virginal mother, the church, the Holy Spirit, the fire comes down into her womb, which is the font, and fire is poured into us through water. Don't you love God's artistry? It's so powerful. This is what happens. This is what happens. It's a powerful reality. Again, at the Easter Vigil, you'll hear in this great hymn that's chanted at the beginning of the liturgy called the Exalted. It's this ancient hymn. One line in that hymn, again, is, this night, O Holy Father, when things of heaven are wed to those of earth, the divine to the human. Where does that happen here? Things of heaven are wed to those of earth, the divine to the human. You have to see again, don't look at the beam, look along the beam. Don't look simply at the reality. You have to look along it. There is something very powerful happening here. It's as if, like, that flame up top gets shot down into that font, making those waters fertile. Let's look, at this, uh, let's look at this quote. If Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is his bride, then Christian baptism is more than just a sign of repentance, an ordinance, or a ritual of initiation, it is the bridal bath by which Jesus cleanses us from sin so that we can be united to God. In both Jewish and Greek cultures of that time, the immediate cosmetic preparation of the bride included a bath with fragrant oils so that she could be as clean and as beautiful as possible. Baptism, Paul is saying, is the church's bridal bath that prepares her to be united to her bridegroom, So again, a little history is helpful that in the ancient world, what Peter Williamson is saying is that the immediate preparation for the bride before her wedding was she had to be bathed. (laughs) You didn't get a lot of baths in the ancient world. If you wanted to smell nice, your wedding night's probably one of those nights you want to smell nice. (laughs) I don't know about the groom, but I just, you know, hopefully he took a bath too, but she'd be bathed and she'd be anointed with perfumed oils. So, this leads us to ask the question, what were you doing, John the Baptist, out in the wilderness? What were you doing out there, baptizing all of Judea and the surrounding region? All of them were going out to be baptized by John. What were you doing? John, when he's asked, who are you? He says, I am not the Christ. I am the friend of the bridegroom. In Hebrew, the word there is shoshbim. He's the best man, is what he's saying. I'm the best man. Peter Williamson, back to that quote, he's saying it was the shoshbim who had the responsibility of making sure the bride got her bath before her wedding. John the Baptist, the shoshbim, the best man of Jesus, is out in the wilderness. Yes, he's doing this baptism of repentance, but out in the wilderness, on a mystical level, from God's perspective, John is preparing the bride. Who is the bride? All of humanity, all of Jerusalem, all of Israel. He's preparing the bride to meet her bridegroom because the wedding is coming, is is what John is saying. He's preparing the bride to meet her bridegroom. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. Baptism is seen in its fullness as a nuptial mystery. The soul, until now a simple creature, becomes the bride of Christ. When she comes out of the baptismal water in which he has purified her in his blood, he welcomes her in her white bridal robe and receives the promise which binds her to him forever. Remember, there's that, uh, I think it's in Matthew's Gospel. I could be wrong. But Jesus has been giving a whole series of what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a net thrown in the sea. It's like a merchant looking for pearls. It's like a woman making bread with flour and wheat. And then he gets to this image where he says, it's like a wedding feast where the king threw a wedding feast for his son. You can see Jesus going,
0: you see what I'm saying,
1: right? And everybody's invited. He goes on, everybody So he sends out the servants, invite everyone in to the wedding feast. My hall must be filled. So people get invited to this wedding feast. Again, Jesus going, you're all invited. And then there's this part of this parable where there's someone in the wedding feast who doesn't have the wedding garment. It's not as though the king is like, you're not wearing Gucci. What are you doing here? Get out, right? Guards, seize him, wailing and grinding. No, it's the symbol of the baptismal gown, the baptismal garment, right? Which is an outward sign of this inward reality, this new cleansed reality. Fast forward to the book of Revelation, which means unveiling, apocalypsis, unveiling. What you find that gets unveiled, that gets revealed in the book of Revelation is that heaven is this wedding feast. Would you look at that? Jesus said this going be like a wedding feast and heaven's like a wedding feast. What a coincidence. Heaven's this wedding feast and the center point is this lamb standing on the throne and surrounding the lamb are 144,000 men and women from every language, tongue, tribe, people and they are all wearing, guess what? White garments. Again it's an image of the bride. It's an image of baptism. It's an image of baptism. When we baptize you in a few when I baptize you in a few weeks, like all of these realities, like Converge. In the traditional vision of the church's liturgy for the Easter Vigil, you would be fully submerged, like a full full immersion font. We don't have a full immersion font, um, not yet. I should say, <laughs> Keith Heydu, I've got some ideas for you. I've got some drawings. We've got to find out if this floor can support it. Okay, we'll talk. All right. <laughs> anyway. But the person being baptized, they would be wearing a dark-colored garment. Be submerged in this dark-colored garment. And you come out, and you change into this white garment. So powerful. So, so, so powerful. And then what happens? You get smeared with perfumed oil. Chrism. Right? The chrism that gets consecrated by the bishop at the chrism mass. Where when he pours balsam into olive oil, then he leans over the oil. This is such a cool part of the, of the mass. He leans over this jar of oil, and he goes, wait for it. <sighs> he breathes into it. Then he takes the holy dipstick, and he mixes it. Then he cleans it with a paper towel. And I always think he's going to, like, here's your oil levels, church. Why does he breathe into it? Because the morning of the resurrection, the Lord Jesus appears in the upper room, says, Peace be with you, and breathes on the apostles. Spiritus, breath, rua. He breathes out the Holy Spirit upon them. Those were the first bishops they handed on their authority to the next bishops, who handed their authority to the next bishops from 2,000 years ago. That the breath that was breathed in the upper room, which is now a mosque, but let's not talk about it, the breath that was breathed upon the apostles in the upper room gets breathed upon the bishops through the centuries, what has been breathed upon Bishop Malesic, and he will breathe upon that oil, and that oil will be put on your head. It will be put upon your head. You will become a Christos, an anointed one a little christ that's what a christian is the virginal womb of the blessed mother gives birth to the to the to, to christ the virginal womb of mother church gives birth to christians nuptial mysteries deep realities Baptism is more than the forgiveness of sins. It is a sacrament of intimate union with Jesus through which the individual believer becomes part of the mystical body of all believers, the church, the bride. Baptism is the way that Jesus communicates his love as bridegroom to each human person. He saves us not through a decree, he saves us with an embrace. I'm telling you, it's so deep, it's so deep. Okay, I gotta move on. Let's say a word about confirmation. Let's first say what confirmation is not because this is the stuff that makes me crazy. Confirmation is not, uh, this this is clearer when it's confirmation for high schoolers or teens. I've heard uh, many confirmation masses where unnamed bishops have said, when you were baptized, your godparents, your parents said yes for you. Now that you are older, you get to say yes and confirm your faith. I want to be like, Bishop, that's, that's a great Lutheran theology of, bapti- or of confirmation. But that's not Catholicism. <laughs> That's not what that's not what Catholics believe. It's not the Catholic bar mitzvah, right? It's not the Catholic coming of age. Now you're an adult in the faith, mazel tov, right? Let's have a party. Put you on a chair. Confirmation. This is from this is both from the Catechism and from it's called the prenatunda. The prenatunda is this introductory document that's at the beginning of every one of the Church's ritual books. The prenatunda of the sacrament of Confirmation says this: the Confirmation is the sacrament of initiation by which God passes on the grace of Pentecost and perfects the grace received in baptism. Now this is very cool. This is very cool. This is so much cooler than bar mitzvahs, the grace of Pentecost. It's very clear in the scriptures that there's a distinction between baptism and the secondary reception, the secondary outpouring of the Holy spirit. That's clear in scripture. So let's look at this whole issue of Pentecost. I love this painting of Pentecost. Um, I've had this in my office. I just rotated it out for a different painting. Anyway, but I love this image. Who's in the center of this painting? Ooh, I wonder if that's important. We're going to talk about that. Okay, so let's ask the question, what is the grace of Pentecost? Well, the book of Acts says, when all the disciples were gathered together, when they were together in one place, and, Luke says, and the mother of Jesus was there, This is where Luke is going, okay? The Holy Spirit came upon them and rested on them as tongues of fire. What is happening to them first happened to her. The grace of Pentecost, you have have to picture Mary being in this upper room with all the guys, the doors start rattling, the wind is blowing Holy Spirit, tongues of fire, and Mary's like, I remember this. And they're all like, all the guys are like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> She's just, ah, you know. The grace of Pentecost is the grace of the Annunciation being spread out. The grace of Pentecost is the grace of the Annunciation being spread out. The Annunciation, again, When Gabriel comes to Mary, the fire of the Holy Spirit comes down upon her. You shall conceive in your womb and bear a son. Again, let's talk about grace building on nature. What is a womb? It is an open space, an empty place in a woman's body that doesn't exist for her body, but for another body, right? It's a place you have in your body, my dear sisters, That's waiting to house and be the home of another body. It's an open space waiting to be fulfilled by the presence of another. The womb is the physical icon of the heart. Physical icon of the heart. What happened to Mary's womb happens to Christians' hearts, it's meant to happen to our hearts. Again, remember, when Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Raise your hand if you've had someone live in you. Okay, a few of us. Notice how they're all women. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. That might not be as clear in 10 years. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Canceled. Okay. What happened to you physically, my dear sisters, is what happens to everybody who is a disciple. It's meant to happen to everybody who's a disciple. Your physical gestation of life in you for nine months is a sign of the Christian life. Right? What does Jesus say? Abide in me as I abide in you. My father and I will come to you and we will make our dwelling in you. There's going to be blue lines (laughs) on your life. What happened to her is what happens to them. The fire is spreading. The wombs of their hearts are being filled with the new wine. Go back to the prophet Isaiah. If Anybody was at Daily Mass today when I was preaching? I preached about alcohol this morning. It's pretty fun. Today's the feast day of St. Bridget of Kildare, who had this great image of heaven like plunging into a lake of beer. That's a saint I can get behind. (laughs) Anyway, the prophet Isaiah describes the coming of the Messiah as this mountain flowing with wine. Wine, of course, in the Old Testament, all throughout the Psalms, is the symbol of God's divine love being poured out. Jesus's first miracle was at the wedding feast of Cana, where he turned 180 gallons of water into 180 gallons of the choicest wine. It was a preparatory symbol that was pointing ahead to when he would truly pour out the new wine, God's divine love, the Holy Spirit, fire, right? Through the Paschal mystery, Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection, and the sending of the Spirit. This is the new wine that Isaiah prophesied about. Where are they right now? They're in Mount Zion. They're on a mountain. On that day, on the Lord's mountain, the mountain will drip with wine. Who thought that the wine would be made out of fire? No one. I I didn't see that coming. They're filled with this new wine, and they spill out into the streets. And they begin talking and preaching in all these different languages, and everyone's looking at them, and the only thing they can think is, These people are drunk. These people are drunk. And then they go, They can't be drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. I said, Well, you've never been to college, okay? <laughs> <laughs> never run to, never mind. I'm just going to stop. <laughs> That's the only category they have. They must be inebriated, they must be drunk. What did the Pharisees say about Jesus? They said, well, Jesus said, John the Baptist came to you fasting, and you said that he was weird, essentially. I come to you eating and drinking, and you say that I'm a glutton and a drunkard. This is the new wine being poured out. The goal of the spiritual life, we could say, the goal of the spiritual life is to get Totally intoxicated on the new wine of God's love. Totally filled, totally possessed by the Holy Spirit. Filled with joy, exuberance, life. Right? Jesus did not say, I came that you might have life and that it would be boring. <laughs> That's not what he said. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. He's interested in the abundant life When Jesus catches fish, he catches so much fish that boats are sinking. When he makes wine, he makes so much wine, there's 180 gallons. When Jesus makes bread, there's 12 wicker baskets left over after he's fed 5,000 people. This is not a God of crumbs and drips. This is a God of super abundance. I want your life filled to the brim, he's saying. This is what's happening at Pentecost. This is the goal of the spiritual life, to get drunk, if you will, on God's love. They're, so here's the apostles, filled with this love, filled with this fire, filled with this new wine. They go out to share with the world the one whom they've encountered, the one whom they've received and conceived. Let me tell you about him. They bear him into the world. This is why confirmation is the sacrament Of evangelization it's what empowers us and moves us from the upper room scared out into the streets like until this happened they weren't willing to be martyrs Peter and all the boys they had seen Jesus walk on water raise the dead they've seen him cure the blind they've heard his preaching they've seen him raised from the dead but that wasn't enough to get them out of the upper room into the streets They had to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They had to be filled with divine life. They had to be filled with the fire, the new wine. They had to conceive something. A whole new way of life opens up to you when you've conceived something. Everything begins to shift. So the sacrament of evangelization euangelion again, the good news. What is the good news that they're walking out into the streets telling people? You wouldn't believe it, people. We've got, I know we have 613 laws, but I'm about to tell you some new rules that you're gonna love. You get to be good if you follow these rules. And you better go to church and wear pants and a dress. Like, is that the good news? Is that what they were walking out in the streets to say? No, they were proclaiming Christ risen from the dead. They were proclaiming that there is now in the world a love and a power that's stronger than death. They were proclaiming that there is a satisfaction for our hearts, deepest hungers and deepest thirsts. They were telling the world that love himself has come to us and has espoused himself to us, united himself to us. And we receive through this sacrament, the church says, these sevenfold gifts of the Spirit. I'm, I'm not going to go through all these. You can read it in the catechism. They're very powerful and beautiful. Um, but I just want to land with this. It's maybe not the most uplifting note, but it's important. It's important. The catechism says we are set apart, consecrated. So part of the ritual of confirmation is that the, uh, the, if the bishop's confirming you, The bishop does this. If the priest is confirming you, the priest does this. But it's this gesture called the laying on of hands. Looks like this when he's praying over a group. Where does this gesture come from? It comes from here. When the Old Testament priests would lay hands on the animal being set apart for sacrifice. So I've said this before, but again, if you were like a bull in ancient Jerusalem and you saw a priest... Walking towards you with his hands outstretched. You better start praying your act of contrition real fast. <laughs> moo, moo, moo. Moo, 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 moo. <laughs> moo, 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 moo. Anyway, because <laughs> you're about to die, <laughs> okay? You're about to be set apart. You're about to be martyred. Death is coming to you. This is why the Catechism says that confirmation is the sacrament of witness. You know what the word in Greek for witness is? Martyrioi. That's where we also get the word martyr. When you leave that upper room and you go into the streets, you're going to suffer. You're going to experience some kind of martyrdom. Whether it's white martyrdom, your reputation, friends, relationships, people speaking ill about you, thinking ill about you. You might suffer a green martyrdom. Your job might have to change. Your priorities in that workplace might have to change. You might have to stand up to somebody. You might lose your job. You might get sued. Might be a red martyrdom, like nearly all of the apostles. But if you're going to witness to Jesus in this fallen, broken world, you're going to suffer something. Like, it is so easy. It's so easy to sit in a canoe and float down the river. You don't even have to paddle. You just sit in it. But if you want to go up the stream, it's going to take a lot of effort. If you want to leave the upper room and go into the world and paddle against the stream, get ready. Get ready. It's the sacrament of martyrdom. The sacrament of witness. You know what happens when you do it? This. (laughs) The faith gets passed like candles get lit at the Easter Vigil, one-to-one, person-to-person. It's one of my favorite parts of the Easter Vigil. As the night starts, the big candle, Christ Himself, who's conquered the darkness, Christ who's defeated all of it, comes into the darkness of the church, victorious, and then we light our flames from that. And then person to person, it gets passed. It's not like a big flamethrower. Let's just get this over with. Efficiency. It's person to person. God is going to give you immense and beautiful and mighty gifts. He's going to unite himself to you through baptism. He's going to fill you with divine life through confirmation of the Holy Spirit. And you're going to receive a candle. You're going to be asked, go find someone who doesn't have their candle lit. Just start there.